This week on the Boag World Show, we explore the world of user research and ask how much attention all digital professionals should pay to it. This week's show is sponsored by Miro and Testing Time. Show the podcast about all aspects of user experience design, digital strategy, and working in the world of digital. My name is Paul Boag, and joining me, as always, is Marcus Lillington and the chat room crew. Ooh. That's what I'm now going to call them because <laughs> they'll really like that. They'll make them yeah. feel well, it's better than Boag Worlders, isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. quite simply. Take two. So there you go. Here we are again, a day later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You. What, what those who aren't in the chat room will not realise is we tried to record this yesterday, but Marcus's Wi-Fi at his place of work, not his home, mm. but at his place of work was so shocking that we couldn't do it. Yeah. New office. You think, yeah, it's all great. It's all set up. No, you know, it's a shared meeting room, but I booked it all in. All, but we said, no, we don't need any, you know, we don't need any hard wiring into the connectivity wi-fi's fine meh oh that yeah. noise i've got builders next door so if you hear strange noises it's not me it's them that's all right that. and stuff like that well but, yeah that so here i am back at home where everything works and there are guitars behind me instead of a plain white wall uh, but you haven't exactly got the best internet connection at home have you well it's pretty good i, I get about 50 mbps but sometimes mm. it just dies to five. And ah. if I pull out pull out the router, plug it back in again, it's all okay again. Uh, and apparently most of where I live is like that. And also just over well, the road, the most they get is eight. And I get 50. But didn't you say coming down your road is fibre, the main the main road? Yeah, I'm on fibre. Well, you're not on, yeah, but you're not on fibre. I'm not fibre right. to the house, no. I'm, no. I'm fibre, fibre, fibre to, to the, the cabinet. To the cabinet, yeah. Yeah. See, now, this is very interesting. Oh, is it? Because is it really? I've discovered... Discovered? What's discovered? I've discovered something. Something you keep um, in a... Cu- you discover something in a cupboard. There you go. That, would, that would be it. To discovered. Yes. Again, verb. once again, <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing how the transcriber manages to, to deal with that particular fluff. <laughs> Hello, transcriber. Um, yes, you can actually request fibre to the premises. Can you? I didn't know you could do this. So obviously all Surely new that's builds. going to cost a fortune. Not necessarily. See, here's the thing in the UK. So obviously all new builds are, are fibre to the to the premises. They, that's just what they do now. Mm-hmm. If, however, you look, live like the majority of people in the UK in some old decrepit house. I certainly do. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, it's more of a thing you do if you're going to do it from a business perspective, which obviously you would would be doing, Mm. is you pay, you have to pay OpenReach £200 to do a survey, right? right? So I've just had my survey done. Um, And you lose that money, whatever happens, right? But the government then will fund up to £2,500 worth of work to get the fibre to your premises, right? Okay. So in my case, as it so happened, and as I suspected, um, there's fibre that goes just down our main road, which is, you know, a couple of hundred yards away, and there is trunking between there and my house, with the exception of about a eight feet, ten feet bit. Okay. So all they've got to do is dig up that eight to ten feet bit which they can do for under 2,500. Well, I don't know. I haven't got the survey back yet, but I suspect that you can. Um, then then I don't pay anything additional beyond the 200 pound to get them to survey it and I'll get fibre to the premises. Which is cool. And I was thinking about you and being lucky with money. What, what some news you got there? Wow. We're all like, uh, yeah, Boag world. Or Boag, rather, he's all, he always lands on his feet. <laughs> I say this is this is kind of, although it's, it's it's thrown up a very interesting dilemma, and I will be interested in people's um, opinions on my my dilemma. Right? Okay. okay. So here here is my bit of of good news. 
which, to be fair, came out of some pretty bad news. When oh, yeah, we were yeah, yeah. renovating... Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, when very pleased When we were renovating the house, right, we got an email from our builder mm. that basically said, oh, we've changed our bank account details. Can you pay the latest invoice? This is the invoice number, and here's all the details from the invoice that we'd already received. Um, can, you, can you pay into the new bank account? So we went ahead and paid it. And it turned out somebody had hacked his email so he knew all of the, they he knew all of the the builders invoice numbers and all the amounts and everything else uh, and then emailed people out saying can you put it into this new account and so we transferred a sizable amount of money because renovating is not cheap um across into this and ah that was you know the end of it right we contacted the bank in about two hours but it was by the time the bank responded it was too late now i was slightly upset that they didn't respond quicker because it took them over a day to come back to us. And if they'd been quick, they could have put a freeze on the other bank account. Mm. And sure enough, a year and a half later, the financial ombudsman agrees with me. I'd long ago given up on it, you know, presuming it wouldn't go anywhere. And we've got the whole lot back from the bank plus interest plus uh, £200 compensation or something ridiculous. Oh, that's cool. Right. Which is, you know, fair enough. So, but here's the interesting moral dilemma, Marcus. This is the moral maze Mm. with Marcus Lillington, right? What would you do in this situation? So when the problem originally happened, um, the builder blamed us for, um, uh, for, you know, paying the money into the wrong account. And we blamed the builder for allowing his email to be hacked. And then we both realized that we were both victims and screw the whoever did it to us we weren't going to fall out over it and so we split it down the middle yep right so that means half of the compensation is due to the the builder right absolutely fine Mm -hmm. no problem with that except for the fact that in the intervening one and a half years he has closed his business retired and moved to spain right (laughs) yeah Right. So, so none of his telephone numbers work. None of his email works. Um, and we've contacted some of his other workers, right? The people that we, we work with, none of them know how to contact him. So how hard do you try to return his half of the money? That's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. You've done your best. I, I was going to be a bit nicer than that to the builder man because if he's retired, he could probably really do with a little bit extra. Um, yeah. So uh, I would go back to the people he works with and ask them, you know, who are his friends that are still around? Um, yeah. And- well, we've we've tried that. <laughs> okay. Mm. We got the last thing <laughs> we've managed to do. Our very last idea was we've sent a letter to the the address that the company was at a mm. physical letter hoping his post will be forwarded on all oh, right okay, but yeah. what what we've basically concluded is look we'll give it we'll we've tried all these different routes maybe it gets through to him somehow in the next couple of months mm. right if it goes on longer than that we're going to take the money and we're going to donate it to charity yeah perfect there's nothing else you can do, is there, really? It's a real tricky one. It's a very strange situation. <laughs> we are trying. There you go. I mean, it could be, it could be a, a case of, I've got the money now. He doesn't know. What do I yeah, do? Do I not tell him? him? <laughs> at all. Yeah, exactly. Don't make any effort yeah. at all. Which is where I thought no. we were going to go with it, Paul. No, no, no. no <laughs> not that bad. But it's interesting, you know, because me and me and Kath... Paul in the, Paul in the chat room it, says he'll, he'll find him for a cut. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there there was a there there are people that do that, aren't they? Find hmm. relatives that are um, due inheritance. I have in had terms, that happen to in me. Return for a cat. That's an interesting job to do. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's that's my my little moral dilemma because me and Catherine disagreed slightly about the degree of effort that mm. you need to put in. Um, I won't say which side I came down on because I think it's fairly predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but. But it's, it's, you know, it is an interesting, it is an interesting one. 
and he totally deserves it because he was very nice. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, if he if he'd been in the U, if we could have contacted him, I would have definitely contacted him. But you know, at some point you've got to go. Well, I don't know what else to try. Really, short of hiring someone like Paul from the chat room to go and find him for us. You know. Mm. Anyway, there you go. So fiber fiber to the premises, people. Is it's a, worth is knowing if you live yeah. in the UK. Yeah, cool. Because you know. Although Lewis, is Lewis in the room today? Lewis is always boasting about how ridiculously fast his internet is at home. So I'm, oh, he's not, oh, yes, he is in. Yeah, Lewis, we hate you <laughs> and your ridiculously fast internet. Anyway, Marcus, have you got a thought for the day today? I have got a thought for the day. Where are my notes? Here they are. What is it? It's something about English podcasters. We've got Gardener's Question Time for the web and Thought for the Day for the web. <laughs> Men of a certain age. That's what it is. I don't mind. Not that I've listened to the radio before in the morning for years. It just got annoying. But anyway, mm. um, competitor reviews. I'm, do- Ooh, yeah. I'm doing one at the moment, so it's front of mind, so I thought I'd talk about it. Good. So. Because I'm never quite sure. I always have mixed feelings about A, their value, and B, the best approach with them. Well, interesting you say that, Paul. Because. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like we've got this plan, because we really don't. Not at all. Now, we found that there are kind of, over the years, we've, we've, we've taken two approaches to competitor reviews. One, and it's, we kind of used to do these, was a very highly detailed heuristics-based review. Yeah. Or two, a more sort of narrative-based, have a look around, note what's good and bad review. Yeah. So those those kind of two different approaches. And like I said, we used to do the heuristic reviews a lot uh, where we'd agree on a fairly large number of elements, probably between 30 and 50, so 40 um, the <laughs> different elements that we'd, we'd measure each competitor against. So you'd have, I, I don't know, pfft, Donation process would be one of these these heuristics, and you'd look at each yeah. one of the you know the five or six different competitors, and you'd measure each one. So you would be giving a score uh, for each yeah. site uh, based for, the, for for each of these forty heuristics, as well as providing a little bit of commentary for each one. So, and that's it. Was sorry to that's right. just cut across you, but that that was the ones that I always particularly struggled with as to the real value mm. of well what are you going to do with that well uh, once you know it so i'd say what's good about that kind of review is the results that you get are kind of quantitative okay it's mm. it's the reviewer's opinion but there's a score there are numbers so what you can do is as uh, you know once that that review uh, you know the the document has been delivered you can look at it and as a as one of our clients and say we're doing better than company x at this but they're better than us at y and mm. you can create really cool-looking graphs and radar plots and all that <laughs> kind of stuff yeah. to show the results. That's, that's not, that doesn't make it valuable, no. Marcus, just because mm-hmm. you can create a cool-looking graph. Yes. graph. Yeah, okay. Um, but, <laughs> but I think a heuristic re- that type of heuristic-based review takes a very long time, so therefore they're expensive to carry out, and yeah. they take forever and they're really boring to do. Um, yeah. But the key point, I think, is I think you would find the most important takeaways using the more narrative approach. Yeah. So where you might spend a week on a heuristic review, you could potentially discover the most important stuff or wins within a day with the more kind of random approach. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating to, the, uh, to make the point you might spend, it's just a little bit less time usually. So I, and the reason why I'm saying that is because we've ended up doing a kind of more hybrid approach now to competitive yeah. reviews. So Rather than having 40 or so very specific measures that you have to go through each site, um, you know, it just takes forever and it's, it's mind-numbing. What we do is we'll measure the sites against much more broader, broader categories like branding, messaging, design, content, navigation, calls to action, and so on. So this still provides useful comparisons. So you can still say, you know, from a kind of branding or messaging point of view, we're doing better than company X, but we're doing worse than company Y. We, as reviewers, aren't straight-jacketed into measuring absolutely everything when we don't need to. Mm. That is my thought for the day. Yeah, and I think I, I think I probably agree with that. Is it, it's all about return on investment, isn't mm-hmm. it, really? Yep. You know, I think a lot of people commission um, these kinds of reviews 
without having a clear idea going in what they're going to do when they discover that because you're right you know a good heuristic of review can let you know okay we need to be invested you know that we need to be investing more in design or usability or donation process or whatever it be yeah the point and of that them is kind to tell of, you what's wrong or, 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 yeah, or, or yeah. learn stuff they're doing it really well we, we should copy them um yeah the, the, the but often doing, but, yeah sorry carry on but i'm just not convinced people often do that do you know what I mean? I think, that, oh, that's interesting. And then they carry on with whatever it was they were going to be doing in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Maybe. But that's even Am more I cynical. cynical? That's more cynical than me, Paul, for once. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's, like- they're quite enjoyable. If you're, if you're not straightjacketed by, oh, I've got to do this one and then that one. If you, if you can just kind of look around and, and find stuff that's interesting, they're yeah. actually quite interesting to do. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I, you know, I do them mm. like, fairly, fairly often, but I almost always go towards the narrative because mm. it's much lighter weight. Unless, you know, unless somebody has got a very strong opinion, we want to do this so that we can make this judgment and mm. then do this, um, I would go with a much lighter weight approach, I think. Because yeah. oftentimes you feel like the competitive review is in there as Andrew points out in the, the chat room, because, you know, the the powers that be want us to review the landscape, you know, and mm. that's about as much depth as there is into it, you know? Yeah, and, I, I, so and there's it, nothing wrong with doing that as long as you don't spend too much effort slash money yeah. doing it. Because Absolutely, it, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it is a, that is a good thing to do, mm. but not if it takes, you know, three weeks of work, you know, no. There are better things to spend oh, money on. I spend three weeks on a competitor review. I would die. I'd yeah, get mad. I know, right? <laughs> you know what? You should be spending that money on instead. Some doing some user research, which happens to be <gasps> odd. Uh, I, I, that cat is going three weeks exclamation mark. No, I just pulled that out of my ass. I, I've never spent three weeks doing a competitive review in my life. So don't don't use that as a benchmark. <laughs> yeah, that's. Paul Boag says the standard competitive review is three weeks long. Oh, my God. I've spent word. a week on more than one occasion. Yeah, no, I've spent a week. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yes, yeah, user well, research, I'd prefer Paul. to spend. Uh, yeah, I'd prefer to spend the money on user research because uh, to me, that's more competitive. Uh, more, more, not competitive, more applicable, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the other thing I always I have about competitive reviews is if you're just spending all your time looking at a competition then you're always going to be following them you're always going to be one step behind them yeah um so although there is a value in it it can't be enough by itself and that's what brings us on to today's subject which is user research right but of course we're talking about user research within the context of the season and the context of the season is that everybody should care about the subjects we're talking about, whether you be a designer, a developer, or whatever. So I have to now explain to you why I think that even if you're a developer or even if you're a manager, you need to care and know a bit about user research. So I had to think about this quite heavily um, because I wasn't entirely convinced that that I was convinced that everybody needed to understand this. But the more I thought about it, the more I've decided, no, I'm going to stick with my throwaway um, decision to put this in the season. Um, because I think there are two types of, of research we're talking about here. Um, there is research um, about the person themselves that you're you're researching right and then there is the research about how that person uses and perceives your products and services right Mm -hmm. and depending on your role you might favor one of those areas more than another right i have to say so that without thinking about it at all that i agree i think this is something that everybody yeah. should care about i don't know why yeah you're going to teach me well <laughs> I, I, it's more of a gut reaction what, what i think made me think about it was i was challenging my own assumptions because obviously i'm going to think it's important because i'm a user experience designer right but you know as i was i want this season to be more than just user experience designers pushing their agenda of what it is we think is important. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, 
so I was like debating about whether to include it or not. But I actually think if you t- if you look at it within those two areas, so either about the person or about how the person is is using or perceiving a product or service, then I think whether you, whatever your role, I think that applies. Right? If you're working in digital field, you need to know people better. Mm. Right? Now, the, the big challenge, obviously, in this is is developers. Do developers really need to know this? They so maybe don't need to know as much about the the person right you know what that they read the guardian and drive an audi but they do need to know about how the person is using their products and services that they're involved in building so you know it's while a marketer is probably more interested in the fact that they read the guardian and drive the audi than you know that they want to complete this particular task on this particular thing within a website so it, it does depend on what your role is it's but very... yes i think everybody should care about user research you know last... um, paul i'm going to cut across you and I'm, i apologize no, but no, it's, it, it's, it's last week i was going hmm, i'm not sure if developers need to know about sales and marketing and yeah. you said, well, yes, they do. They do because they need to understand because they often the work that they'll be doing has, you know, it's been directed um, or it's been kind of kicked off by the marketing department mm. so that, that you need to have an understanding of why you're doing something. And that's the kind of business objective side of it. This mm. side of it, the user research side of it is the user requirement side of why you're doing something. Yeah. So both are important. Um, so you mm. need to have an understanding of both. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And of course, the outcomes of user research um, is going to affect everybody because, you know, if you're doing it right, uh, you know, your projects should be user centric. Yep. So the result of that is that everyone is going to be affected by the user research. Um, but there is another flip side, another reason why I think it's really good to have an understanding of user research techniques and that's because you can apply it to anybody right (laughs) if you know good user research um uh techniques then you can um apply it to your colleagues as well right to get to know them better to understand what makes them tick what motivates them which is great for for working in organizations and i'm amazed the user experience professionals don't do this more i was talking to i was um, doing a mentoring session with a user a user researcher actually in a big organization and um i was talking her through she was really struggling with internal stakeholders um, and I was talking to her through all these different techniques I use, you know, to, to understand them and their motivations. And it was like this light bulb went on and she said, well, that's what I do with users all the time. Mm. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, you understand what motivates and what they care about and you frame everything in that context. So, yeah, absolutely. That's um uh, it's really useful for that. And of course, user research is going to lead to better products because you're going to have a better experience. You'll be able to provide a better experience. And also, it, it means that you're going to be more successful from a business perspective um, because, um, you know, you're going to get more people uh, recommending the product because they like using it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of this kind of stuff. I don't need to go over that endlessly. Um but it even helps you define what your projects are. So, for example, with customer journey mapping, um, I've worked, when I've been working on customer journey mapping before, um, as we go through the process of mapping the customer journey, you actually find out, well, hang on a minute. We've been spending all our money and resources at this part of the journey because we thought that was the most important when there's this glaringly big hole where we're crap (laughs) further down the line. And this actually happened with one uh, large charity that I work with. And we were like, whoa, okay. So we need to stop spending so much money on raising awareness, you know, where actually the awareness isn't too bad and actually pour money into this part of the the experience where it's falling apart at the moment, right? And, you know, so user research can help uncover those kinds of problems and define um, your projects and not just what projects you do, but also which projects you should prioritize based on their impact on the user. And even the features and, you know, specification for the project based on what it is that users need to know, what they want to do, what objections they've got and that kind of stuff. Hmm. But I mean, one of the primary reasons I love user research so much is it's a brilliant tool for resolving arguments within uh, projects. 
Um, you know, if you get two parties that disagree, just test it, right? It'll be quicker to test it than it will be to argue about it. You know, so absolutely consider that. User research will will speed up projects, right? Because it avoids that endless debate, right? Take, for example, something like design sign-off, right? Design sign-off is a friggin' nightmare because, oh, I don't like the green. And another person goes, oh, I do like the green, but I don't like the typography. And, you, you know, we have to have a meeting to discuss it and... You know, everybody disagrees and and then they try and reach a consensus and it comes out gray. You know, Mm -hmm. if you if you just take, you know, your keywords that you want the design to uh, represent and put the design in front of users with a mixture of keywords and the users select the right keywords. Right. Then, you know, the design's working. Move on. Let's do the next thing. You know. Anyway, it's turning into a rant now. It's funny though, isn't it? So oh, I, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here. Because oh yeah, I, I, you, you rant too. I, I, no, no. This, well, is this a rant? It's more of an observation. It uh, it seems that some senior people, CEOs, you know, heads of businesses, to them, inputting their character into a design seems to be or their character. That's too strong they want to input uh, and they want they want you know it's it's almost like it's they 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 think that it's important that they stamp their kind of not authority but you know their their character i come back to the word character because i can't find a better yeah. one but they want to be part of it and they want to they want to like it i suppose that's what it is um mm. and I, I'm, I'm going going through that at the moment that's something i'm going through and it's and as long as you recognize that it's fine it's it's yeah and that might and i guess but the when it, when it gets to be a little bit difficult is if that might go against what the user research is saying and it's like well hang on a minute how do we deal with that i suppose you've got to find a balance um well i mean i haven't even got a problem with that mm. as long as that leader mm. is being honest with themselves right mm. ultimately they're paying you to you know that mm. person is paying you to produce the design um i uh, and if they want the design to look a certain way because of their ego or because of their desires for the business or whatever else, I'm happy just to deliver what they want. What annoys me is where they disagree with either the user research or my personal opinion. And instead of just saying, I don't care, I want to do it this way anyway. They'll go, well, the user research is flawed or <laughs> they'll want me to agree with them, right? Yeah. That I've got a problem with because, you know, that's not being honest with yourself about your motivations. But if they do, you know, if they want it to be a certain way, then they're paying the bills. Mm. So that's no problem. I, th- I, you think, know. I think it's better than somebody that doesn't care. It's kind of, or is it? it it's a, a slightly well, I don't know one. whether it is. Yeah. <laughs> because it, uh, it depends if you say, well, it depends to what extent they don't care. Yeah. I haven't got a problem with someone not caring about a design. Mm. I've got a problem with someone who doesn't care about the project mm. <laughs> yeah. as a whole, which happens occasionally in big organizations. Mm. I've been dumped with this and, you know, I've got to deliver it. I suppose the um, worst thing of all is the leader that, that, that and we've had this, uh, we had a really bad case of this a couple of years ago. Um, the leader that says, well, I'm hiring you guys because you're the experts. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to go completely hands off and you're going to deliver something I love. Uh, and then the day it went live, he came back with a 20 point list of things that were wrong with it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, OK. <laughs> but that goes back to what I was saying about not being honest with himself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, you I've know, got a massive I'd... tangent there, but it's, it's, no, it's, it's a good tangent. So the final um, reason that I I think user research is something that we we should all be paying attention to is ultimately it's going to save us money because we're we we're going to avoid building things that people don't actually want right which often happens mm-hmm. in projects which I don't care what okay it might not benefit you personally you won't save money personally Mr developer but it means you don't have to buy, build shit that you know nobody cares about which I think we've all done from time to time. Um, and also, you, you're not going to have to 
um, fix costly mistakes further down the line, you know, because you're going to pick up on any potential problems early rather than later. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, it's a no brainer. And to a lesser or greater extent, it should be involved in every project that we do and everything that we do. Um, I mean, to the point, you know, you look at something like the UK government digital service that say, in order to be a stakeholder in a project, you have to have spent at least two hours with the user in the last six weeks. Cool. You know, that's how important they take it. So you know, I'd love to work on projects like that. Could you imagine? Nobody in the room that hasn't spent time with users in the last six weeks. I wonder if they really do that or whether it's just something they shoved on a poster. <laughs> mm, yes, I'm feeling slightly cynical. Uh, they have obviously they had their user research user researchers who are part of every team will have to be will have to have done that but really everyone well I don't that's know. what it that's what they say okay in their service man lewis says he knows no one who actually likes the output of gds i like them what's wrong with their output <laughs> i think it's pretty pretty good generally speaking it's anyway. very easy to use and that's the point yeah, perhaps I'm misunderstanding what he's getting at. <laughs> anyway, right, let's talk about um, uh, our first sponsor, which is test Testing Time. Perfect one. The perfect sponsor to have on this show, and I shall be using them forthwith and with forth. Well, I actually <laughs> am, actually. Hopefully next week. I said it last time they were on, I was saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to be using them next week, and I didn't because the whole project got delayed a little bit. But this week... This is the week that I'm going to be using them. Testing time make doing user research easy because it takes the hassle out of the biggest problem with user research, which is recruiting test users. So whether you're looking for people for usability testing, focus groups, interviews, surveys, whatever, these guys can help you find them. You, you can, um, they can find people for online and remote um, uh, testing, but they can do also offline and on-site testing. They'll help you do that as well. Um, and they've got a pool of over 350,000 people, um, that they draw upon. So, yeah, wow, what a, what a, an amazing service that, um, uh, is really useful. Um, the order process is really simple and straightforward, right? So they calculate the price, um, in real time based on the number and the profile of the people that you want, right? All you've got to do is visit their website. So you enter the number of people that you need, the type of study you're doing, um, the, the criteria, um, the standard criteria, you know, like demographics and that kind of stuff, any special requirements you have. And normally they deliver you participants in 40, within 48 hours, right? So it really doesn't need to slow up your projects much, right? Put it in a, you know, you'll, you get responses back pretty quick. Um, and, You've got this whole customer support team there to help you from one end to the other. If you want to find out more about them, go to testingtime.com forward slash BOAG. So there you go. That is why you should do usability, uh, user research um, and a great tool for overcoming the biggest barrier of doing so. So the question then becomes is where do we need to start? Right. I want to break this down into kind of um three bits right i want to share with you a little bit about what you want to know about users in my opinion a little bit about how you go about learning that and then i want to wrap up with um a few ways that you can then take that and make use of that knowledge um, and visualize that knowledge so let's go through from the first one, what you need um, to know about users. Now, obviously, this is utterly dependent on your job and your project and all of that kind of stuff. But it makes a really boring show if you just say, well, it depends mm -hmm. and then stop there. So I'm just going to kind of give you the kind of things that I um, find myself wanting to know a lot about users um and that will be to, you know some of these things will be more applicable to you than others insert disclaimer here etc etc i got caveat. boring in my old age i never mm. used to do disclaimers i used to make huge sweeping generalizations on this show you did it's a shame it's, it's sad I know. You sound like me oh i'm terribly sorry but you know just in case somebody gets offended you know, i didn't yeah mean it. <laughs> I'll say something completely <laughs> offensive no, in a minute. Because right. then I've got to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So 
First, what, first thing I find myself wanting to know is I've already mentioned this idea of the user journey, right? The idea of the progression that the user goes on through time. Now, that is useful in all kinds of ways. It's going to shape your messaging. It's going to shape your calls to action. It's going to shape which channels you, you're focusing on, what products that you produce, um, uh, where you place your investment. The list could just go on and on and on. So customer journey mapping is, is absolutely essential. Um, I think in pretty much all contexts, I could do a whole, well, I do do a whole talk on customer journey mapping um, because it's a really interesting topic. Second thing that I'm looking at a, a lot is I'm really interested in the, the questions that users have, right? I often use, when it comes to content creation, I almost always encourage people to start with user questions, right? What do users want to know? Let's write answers to those questions and then we can kind of put them together into pages, right? And it, yeah, oftentimes, even things like information architecture, I start off by organizing the questions into piles and that is the basis of my information architecture. We tend to uh, use basically add user questions into each section of the user journey, which yeah, is a, yeah, it's a, absolutely. Yes, that should totally be part of the mm. user journey mapping. Um, another thing that I'm very keen on, um, which is not something that the UX community focuses on hugely, um, but sales and marketing do. And actually, I think the UX community could learn from sales and marketing on this one, which is user objections, right? What's stopping the user from acting? Right. We don't often ask ourselves that question. I don't really know why. But anyway, that's that's a thing that I, I care about a lot because, you know, if you can. Uh, so take, for example, you want someone to sign up for a newsletter. Right. Why might they not sign up for a newsletter? Well, they're worried about spam or they're worried about privacy or they're worried about, you know, how often they're going to receive emails, whether it's going to be relevant to them. They've got all these concerns. If you address those in your call to action right? Mm -hmm. Then your, your conversion rate is going to go through the roof. Yay. You know, Woo. exactly. <laughs> then, but uh, then of course there's the user tasks. What is it the user wants to do mm -hmm. at each stage on their journey? Really important. What's influencing them, right? And I don't just mean, um, they read the guardian, although that is a factor, but I mean, you know, is there, are there a lot of review sites out there? Are they being influenced by uh, social proof on your own website? You know, are they being put off by some of your communications to them earlier on in their journey? Or, you know, what, what is influencing them? What interactions have they had or will they have with the company? Right. So, again, this is the kind of thing you cover in your customer journey mapping. So, you know, have they spoken to you on Facebook? You know, have they come and watched a podcast live? You know, what, whatever. So that kind of thing is really useful to know how they feel at various stages on their journey is another really important thing to know. It's more important in some cases than others. Um, so, you know, when I did customer journey mapping for the Samaritans, how people feel was pretty important as the Samaritans is, you know, for people that are feeling suicidal. Um, but if you're talking about um, uh, how they feel about buying household insurance, it's probably fairly indifferent, if not slightly irritated. And that's about it, you know. But then you have something like um, booking a holiday when actually how you feel will change massively over the period of time, you know, from being quite stressed about getting the right booking and everything sorted out to actually huge enjoyment. So feelings can be pretty important. Um, what's the user's ultimate goal, right? Because nobody comes to your website because they want to come to your website. That's not their goal. Obviously, they want to achieve something. And often we don't dig deep enough into that. Often we think, oh, yeah, we provide, um, you know, oh, let's take testing time. We've just talked about. We provide, um, their people's ultimate goal is to recruit test participants. No, it's not. Their ultimate goal is to understand the user so they can improve the experience and make more money as a business, right? 
So, you know, that looking at that ultimate goal is a really good one. And the, the, there's a very similar one to that. But the flip side of that is what is the pain point they're hoping you, you're going to overcome? And again, if we like take testing time as an example, because you've just been talking about them, um, the pain point is the hassle of recruiting people. You know, are you clear on what the pain point that people are hoping you're going to solve for them is? So, yeah, those are some of the things that I like to know about users. Have I missed anything, Marcus? Is there anything in that list that you think, oh, that should have been in there? I suppose things like demographic, um, yeah, age and, you know, sort of cultural type stuff. Which you would, yeah. Think. So that's very good. That's a good point, actually. That's <laughs> blindingly obvious. I've completely missed that. But yeah, because that would be, um, you know, that would feed into personas. Um, yeah, and also, you know, for a long time, I was a bit like, do we really need to know that? But yes, you kind of do, don't you? You need, you know, I, I think me feeling like that was a very, very. Um, I'm talking about like 20 years ago, I used yeah. to feel like that. I think that's a sign of being a young white man <laughs> that uh, you just <laughs> presume the rest of the world is like you, you know? Um, well, in truth, the older you get, your attitudes and the way you approach things changes quite dramatically, mm. you know, let alone cultural considerations, let alone, you know, gender and all of these other influencing factors. So yeah, you're, you're entirely right. Okay. Um, so how do we go about finding all of that stuff? Well, there's a, um, a proverbial shit ton of <laughs> uh, different techniques that you can use um and it's really trial and error as to what what's going to work in your particular circumstance because it depends on your audience and how you i'm doing another depends isn't it i'm not doing it this time this is the definitive list of things that you should do you shouldn't do anything that's not on this list and anything that isn't on this list is a waste of time i don't think people believe me but there you go okay surveys i find surveys really useful if they are done well right yes um the, the big problem with um, uh, surveys is like legislation, right? Mm -hmm. When you table a piece of legislation, people add amendments onto it and it gets longer and longer and more and more bloated until nobody ever votes for it. And that is exactly what happens with your average survey. Oh, you're adding a survey. Can you just ask this too? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then oh, uh, yeah. You want the most focused, concise to the point survey possible. You need to go in wanting to know a single thing and to only ask the questions that answers that single thing. So for example, when I ran a survey recently on, on my, um, uh, one of the courses that I, w I was running, uh, the video masterclass, conversion rate masterclass, all I wanted to know is what the primary reason was people weren't buying, right? Very simple. So I asked a one question survey that only appeared on exit because we only wanted to get people that really weren't buying. Mm -hmm. um, and I asked the one question, which of these following reasons, um, you know, uh, did you not purchase today? Was it d the, you know, da, 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 or other? And that was it. Sorry, I just got distracted there because somebody in the room said they bought it yesterday and that made me happy. Aww. Yay. Actually, I knew you bought it because I'm watching you. <laughs> Right. Um, <laughs> no, surveys. I yeah, I, creepy. I disagree, Paul. They're, they're, oh, do you? <laughs> no, I, I actually no. I do. I do agree, but I think you can do surveys um, that are effective that are more than just one question, and that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you can. But it's the idea of them being focused. I think is what I'm getting at. Yeah, but what we've done a lot of lately. Uh, when I say lately, I mean over the last couple of years, is making them just focused on top tasks. So. Rather, mm. rather than having lots of opinion-based stuff that's an utter nightmare to wade through once you get the results back, you doing top tasks where you've worked out that there are, I don't know, 60 tasks that, are, are, you know, the average user could, um, you know, could, could do on your site and get them to, to pick five, which you can all do very easily on, you know, automated, um, sorry, on, on online surveys. That kind of, I think, Surveys are great for that kind of thing. I think people doing them get annoyed because they're like, oh, I, want, I want to pick the other one. Or it's such a long list. Ugh. But actually, the results That's we get... That's part of the reason. Yeah, the, the results we get from it are great. Um, rather than just can I, what do can you I, think about Can this? I point out something, Marcus? Mm -hmm. A top task analysis is just one question. It is. 
with 60 potential answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you, you, pick, you pick the best five off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, you would still want, I'd still think you would be asking people to identify the type of user they are as well. Uh, yeah, that yeah, that is true. There's, there's normally, a, yeah, there are. I'll give you that. Yeah, if you haven't tried top task analysis, there's a brilliant list, um, list apart article. So if you Google top task analysis or list apart, I can't be bothered to add it to the show notes. I don't care that much. <laughs> um, Jeremy McGovern, who's the guy that came up with this technique, breaks it down very specifically of how it works, etc. So check that out. But yeah, there are there are lots of another thing you can do is st- uh, is user interviews. All right, we do a lot of those. Very useful. Um, they're really good because you can ask follow-up questions. You can deep dive onto stuff. Um, you can see the faces that people pull, Because right? <laughs> the faces that people pull are often very enlightening in my experience, right? So, yeah, interviews is really good. And you can get um, people you, to, you, to show you. That's a really good thing in an interview. Yeah, that's a really good one as well. Yeah, good point. So um, then we've got... Uh, customer journey mapping workshops. You can do those with users, mm-hmm. right? Unfortunately, that seems to not happen anywhere near as much as it should, but it's by far the best way of doing them. You can do participatory design, Ooh. right? Where you actually do things like let's, right? So, which, you know, um, the, the company wants to communicate these words to you they want to be seen as progressive they want to be seen as you know exciting etc let's you know let's create some mood boards and that you feel represent those kinds of words that would be one example or even doing wireframing with people you know users is is pretty interesting as well it gets some interesting results it's not always applicable but it's good then of course there's card sorting with with um end users do that quite a lot. That's a really useful follow-on tool from doing a top task analysis mm. um, because your top task analysis will narrow down what people actually care about because typically you have far too many things in order to do a card sorting exercise. So you use top task analysis to narrow it down and then you can use card sorting to, to organize that around people's mental models. There's usability testing, obviously. Mm-hmm. In-field studies, I really like, right? Um, so, so this is where you go into someone's home and you do, um, you get their permission first. Don't just turn <laughs> up. They don't like it. I've tried it before. Um, and especially when you climb through the window, that really apparently is wrong. Um, but yeah, you go to people's houses, you sit down with them, you have a chat with them. Um, you do maybe interview them, maybe do a bit of usability testing while you're there. I tell you what, it, it is absolutely transformative in terms of the way you think about it i i always thought usability testing is really good right Mm. what i've kind of learned mine is it's a very artificial environment you do usability testing and you bring people in you sit down in front you know a quiet room in front of a big screen and you know and and they're giving it their full attention because they're being paid by you to to do this job and so it goes on and of course, when you go into their house, a cat jumps on their lap and the doorbell rings halfway through and, you know, they're distracted and life is around. And so it's a much more real representation. Also, you just learn more about people by being able to have a nose around their house. Probably shouldn't say it like that, but that's basically what you're doing. You're not nosing around their house, Paul. You would be, that, oh. that would be, you know, oh. up in the bedroom, bathroom, you know. Yeah. Is that what you do? Is that not? Yeah. Okay don't you do that you two of you go together um, <laughs> and then one of them keeps them distracted while the other one noses around the house and helps yourself to a few bits that's that's the technique isn't it I, I believe you've I been watching that was too much television <laughs> um then there is social media monitoring mm-hmm. obviously um having a i think i mean people used to spend a fortune on market research stuff didn't they mm-hmm. you know and now everybody just lays it out on the internet for them i don't understand why people don't why more people aren't going oh who's this person that follows me? i do all the time when people sign up for my newsletter right every now and again i just go and have a look at the list and i go Oh, what's that company? And I go and have a little nose at them and look at what they're posting on social media and just to get a taste of who these people are. It's not, it's not quantitative. I'm not doing it in any kind of mm. organized way, 
but it's really interesting to kind of get little glimpses of the kind of people that are, are interested in your content and is showing interest. In. The other thing I used to do, I don't do this anymore because I'm a lazy bugger. But the other thing is I used to identify key questions that people would ask on Twitter, right? So if they ever asked a, so I'd have a search running with, with a, we searched on question mark and then a whole series of different keywords like UX, user experience, web design, mm. you know, blah, blah, blah. So then I could see all of the questions that people were asking about my field, which was very enlightening as well. Um, and then obviously there's things like site monitoring, so session recorders, looking at your analytics again. But again, that's a classic thing. Analytics is a classic thing of where, you know, it's a bit like surveys. If you don't go in knowing what you want out, it's a bit of a waste of time. You know, you've got to go into your analytics. If you just like log into Google Analytics, oh, my bounce rate is 87%. Is that good? Is that bad? You know, what you want to do is you want to go in having a specific thing in mind you want to know. Mm. You know, um, that's Chris, Chris Scott taught me that really, mm. you know, he always goes in with a set of questions that he wants answering. And then there's finally user diaries is the other one I had down, but I've never done them. Don't even know what that is, Paul. What's a user diary? So it's where you ask people to keep a track of what their, their experience over normally a prolonged period of time. Okay. So for example, if you were creating a health app for people who had diabetes, right? You might ask them to keep a diary of their experiences relating to, to, to diabetes, yeah. Yeah. Okay. right? But it's, uh, to be honest, again, it suffers from that same problem as competitive reviews, that it's a hell of a lot of work mm -hmm. to go through all the data that you get back from something like that. Um, so, so it's not something I've done a lot with, but I know a lot of people swear by it. Oh, Kat, we're doing uh, user diaries for the first time right now with first-year students. See, that's a – yeah, I can imagine that's a really good scenario because uh, um, Kat works as, in a higher education institution, right? So understanding what those first-year students are. I mean, it'd be even better to get people to do a user – well, not better, but I would be interested <laughs> um, in getting a user diary of people that have – been offered a place but haven't yet accepted the place because i think that's a period of time when universities let down people quite a lot and people do a lot of switching where they say they're going to go to one university and end up going to another so yeah they've absolutely got a use it's just not something that i've got to do a lot of which is kind of a shame because i like playing with new toys hmm. um so the very last thing I'll, I'll do this bit quickly what do you do with all this data once you've got it right so you do all of this effort um I I think it's very valuable to visualize it in some way, right? Because otherwise it all just kind of, oh, that's interesting. And then everybody forgets about it and gets on with their projects as normal. You want something you can kind of tangibly look at regularly. So at the most granular level, you can start to do things like story cards, use the story cards. So when you're defining a project, you don't define it in terms of features and specifications of what the project is going to do, but rather you define it in a series of user story cards, things that you're going to help users do through this project. So I am a first year student at a university. I want to get access to my timetable so I can succeed in my studies, for example. Right. And you'll have a whole batch of these that will be based on the user research that you've done. And that defines your projects. Um, so user story cards. You can also do empathy maps, which are basically personas by another name. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but they tend to have a more of a focus on the things that I've talked about being interested in, you know, tasks, questions, feelings, those kinds of things, rather than the demographic stuff. Um but personas, you know, it all depends on how you use things. It's all semantics, isn't it? Personas, you know, user empathy maps, call it what you want as long as it's got relevant information in um, based on what you need to know for your projects. And then, of course, there's the customer journey mapping we talked about already. And I, the reason that I like customer journey mapping is because the questions people have, the tasks they want to do, how they're feeling change over time. And it's very easy to... Uh, to um, you know, skip over that kind of stuff. So there you go. There's some um, suggestions for user research. Hopefully, 
um, that has at least shown you the value of doing it, even if it's not something you're going to be doing regularly. Hopefully it's given you some um, tips on, on things you should pay attention to, um, etc. So there you go. And let's talk about our second sponsor, uh, which is Miro. So Miro is a, a visualization collaboration platform. Wow, that sounds really what? fancy. <laughs> I know. Yeah, what? This is what happens when you read the copy that people write about their own sites, right? Um, I, so let me explain what it actually is, right? So it's a, it's a, a basically it's kind of a virtual environment that lets you do things like virtual whiteboarding, right? Okay. Um, so conduct, which you could use for conducting, you could use it for conducting user research, right? Mm. Or collecting information on users and put it all in one place. You could do card sorting on it, right? Um, you could share feedback. You, and so essentially it's a place where you can create this like single source of truth for complex projects so you could kind of keep everything together um which of course enables you to create you know designs out of it do research out of it you know so it's it's a kind of communication repository kind of tool i i totally understand why they struggle to explain it because it it does quite a lot it's one of those things where you can use it in lots of different ways right does that make sense depending what your role is so it's you know it might be it's going to be great really where you're dealing with cross-functional teams you've got your product manager you've got your project managers your designers your developers your market your marketers your user researchers they've all got work together somehow so you use a team a tool like Miro because it's flexible and because it can kind of accommodate those different roles. So it enables you to virtually engage with a distributed remote co uh, located teammates across lots of formats and lots of time zones and all that kind of stuff. So, but it's got some really powerful features for designers as well. It's got like an endless canvas where you can just kind of collect bits and bobs. It's like having a whiteboard without edges. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, it's got like hundreds of, of uh, built-in templates you can do for like collaborating on design. Um, uh, it's got chat in it, video conferencing, presentation modes, and it integrates with like 20 plus different other platforms as well. And it's, it's done, used by huge names like 3M and Twitter and Netflix and, you know, list impressive sounding companies here. <laughs> um, so if you want to know more about it and give it a go, because it is worth a, a, a try at least, I have to say, I, I, you know, it's a tool that is incredibly useful. I, I work with a lot of clients that are spread all over the place. And Miro is it's a go-to tool for that kind of stuff. You can just go and find out more about them by going to Miro.com. So you go, right, so that about wraps it up for this week's show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to put a whole load of different resources in the show notes that apparently, according to people in the chat room, nobody ever goes to look at. So I don't know why I friggin bother, <laughs> but there are going to be a load of, of resources that you can check out in the show notes. Um, I've got my 10 techniques to start, uh, get started and improve your user research. Um, how to get started with the usability testing. How to test a design comp. Right. And then I'll make some recommendations for three books as well. There's obviously, obviously you have to put Don't Make Me Think in that list um, as the kind of definitive starter's guide to all things usability and user research orientated. Then there's um, Steve Krug's, because Steve Krug wrote Don't Make Me Think. He wrote a really good practical guide to making that happen uh, called Rocket Surgery Made Easy. And I've also thrown in a great book called, um, it's quite an old book now. Um, but when I read it, it was really good. I imagine it's still good. It didn't feel like something that would date, um, which is called uh, the user experience team of one. Um, so I've, I recommend you check that out. So if it, you know, if you're the only one that gives a shit about this kind of stuff within your company, that will be a really good book for you as well. Marcus, do you have a joke to wrap us up with? I do. Um, I, I, I was on Twitter the other day, which is a rare day for me. Uh, and I saw yeah. Drew McClellan shared this joke. So here we go. For the longest time, I resisted going potholing, but eventually I caved. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. That's pretty good. Thank you, Drew, I think. (laughs) I think, yeah. I don't know why Kat's going, oh, Marcus, where the very first thing that Marcus did was 
distance himself from the joke oh, that he was about to tell by blaming Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Coward's way no, out. I did choose it, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much for that, I think. Um, Next week's show, we're going to look at organisational skills. But until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Oh, right.